We made this. Welcome to Life's Milestones, the podcast about birth and naming ceremonies, relationships and weddings, and death and funerals, right here on the We Made This Podcast Network. My name's Mark Adams, and I am a humanist celebrant. That means that I am accredited and insured by Humanists UK to write and deliver non-religious ceremonies for everybody. Before we get into the show... You might have noticed the amazing new theme tune for Life's Milestones. And I want to do a huge shout out to the composer and performer of that wonderful piece of music. His name is Colin Jackson Brown, fellow podcaster, but also a very talented musician who has done loads of really cool themes, including the theme for my other podcast, Right in the Childhood. If you are interested in... Learning more about Colin, you can do. He's got his own podcasts, We Dig Music and Free With This Month's Issue, which you can find wherever you found Life's Milestones. But he's also with me on a Red Dwarf podcast called Shipwrecked and Comatose. If you want to listen to more of his music, you can. If you search for Warwickshire Necropolis Railway Company on Bandcamp. And he's got an album up there at the moment. And finally... One last thing about Colin is he was episode five of Life's Milestones, so have a listen to him there as well. Thank you, Colin. You are awesome. Colin is not my guest this week. My guest is actually Brad Shreve, who is the second in a series of four of people I found via the Queer Podcasting Alliance, a group on Facebook. And I've been overwhelmed by these responses because they've been incredibly interesting and different guests from all over the world. And so Brad is a fascinating man who's had a really interesting life. He's an American chap from Michigan and he's, well, I tell you what, I'll let him tell you. This is my interview with Brad Shreve. With me at this time is Brad Shreve. Hello, Brad. Hello. Welcome to Life's Milestones. Thank you for joining me on this episode. You are the second of a wonderful response I had when I put out a call on the Queer Podcasting Alliance for LGBT folk to come and talk to me on Life's Milestones. So thanks again for joining me. Well, I saw the post and pulled up your podcast and found it fascinating and jumped in and said, I'll talk to you. (laughs) <laughs> brilliant brilliant stuff and um you did send me over your own podcast as well which is uh career queer writers of crime try, <laughs> try saying that twice um <laughs> but no i i also had a listen and it's really really interesting who knew that there were that many gay writers who were writing crime i sure didn't originally and when i discovered the genre exists because the romance genre is huge and it's easy for people to say, okay, for LGBTQ folk, 
it's pretty much romance novels is all you've got. And I've been a mystery fan for as long as I can remember. And I tried to write a mystery that included a lot of romance. And I'm not against romance, but it's not my thing. So I was miserable and wasn't getting very far. And then when I discovered a couple of queer mystery books and looked into it and realized there's this whole category on Amazon that has it, I said, oh, I found my place. (laughs) I love it. So thinking, realizing that other people probably don't know the genre exists is why I started my podcast, Queer Writers of Crime. So people can stumble on it and say, oh, there it is. Brilliant stuff. And you've actually started to write some queer crime as well, haven't you? You Are they the Mitch O'Reilly mysteries? That's correct. I've written two novels with Mitch. The first one is A Body in a Bathhouse. And I really seriously debated on the title because I didn't want people to think it was an erotica novel. Mm. And I liked the title so much, I went with it anyway, and it hasn't caused any problems people really enjoyed it people have actually been intrigued because of the title but through the blurb they knew it wasn't going to be erotica because i didn't want to disappoint anybody and then my second book is a body on the hill and it's the the hill in particular is the hill that the hollywood sign happens to be sitting on okay cool which is part of the mystery why was he put there huh I'll be honest, I haven't read them yet, but when I was researching for this episode, I was like, bloody hell, I might actually give these a go. So, um, yeah, I'll get myself on Amazon, get myself the ebook. Well, when you're done, you'll have to let me know what you think. I love honest feedback. And a review never hurts. <laughs> I will do. Have you thought about doing audio for your books? Because almost all the books I read now, I listen to them in the car or, or whatever. I just only really read comic books now rather than uh, booky books. (laughs) Yes. My sales as a brand new author on my Kindle and my paperback, I've been thrilled to death with the sales, both the first and the second book. I did release in December, I believe, the audiobook because I had numerous requests for the audiobook. And despite how well the books themselves have done and all the people asking for an audiobook, the audiobook sales have not been so great. Uh, but I do have a audiobook for the second novel that's probably coming out in a month or so. Huh. Then I'll probably buy the audiobook because that's more my thing. Well, A Body in a Bathhouse is available on audio. Amazing. And I think I picked a good narrator for it. Brilliant. So what we're going to do before we get into the main questions about birth and relationships and death, just a quick guest profile. We've talked about your cool stuff, but get an idea of who you are. How old are you? I'm 57. And where are you from? What's your background? I was born in Niles, Michigan, and folks around the world generally are better at geography than Americans are. It's right on the border of Michigan and Indiana. And I lived there till I was about 10 and then did a a couple of years in Pennsylvania. And then my teen years into early adult was in High Point, North Carolina. So very dramatic areas of 
the country as well as how people talk and act and that sort of thing. Hmm. So we've talked about the fact that you've written two crime novels, the fact that you've got a queer crime podcast. Is there anything else that you want to highlight that makes you interesting? Well, having listened to your podcast, I really had to ponder it. And the best thing that I can find that's interesting about me is I don't work. People think I'm a full-time writer making a living off of that. And I can assure you, having only published two books, that is not true. And <laughs> most writers that are very prolific don't make a living off their writing. It's, it's, we aren't all living in the Hamptons, you know, enjoying the good life. <laughs> the truth of the matter is I have bipolar disorder, so I have been on disability for the past 10 years. And I tried to get other jobs and I tried to go back to school and even with special assistance, both failed mis miserably. Hmm. And I was reading a book called M male couples, which is a picture book with gay male couples. Right. And there's a story about each of the couples. And in one of them, there's a line where, the person with bipolar said, realizing I could never work for someone else, I had to think about what I could do. And for me, it was writing novels. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's that's really, really important that I think you do that. Thank you. Well, I'm somewhat passionate about it. I wrote a blog about bipolar for 10 years. Can people still see that? Yes, actually, they can. It's insightsbipolarbear.com. Bipolar bear. I love it. <laughs> Amazing. I would say for a good number of years, my whole world revolved about bipolar disorder. I don't know if in your part of the world you're familiar with Sanjay Gupta. He is yeah. a medical expert on, I think it's CNN news. Yeah. And two people, I was interviewed twice and was put on his website about my bipolar disorder. Now, it said that he wrote the article, which I hate to say he did not. <laughs> but <laughs> I, ne I never talked to Mr. Gupta or Dr. Gupta whatsoever. But I was featured on his online website a couple of times and with the blog. And to me, it was just to remove the stigma. I like to be very open. This is what I have. It's no different than if I have diabetes. No, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, the only high-profile bipolar person that I could think of was uh, Mauro Ronaldo, and um, I think he's amazing. He's the best sports commentator in the world, in my opinion. There's another one that I'm sure you know. I don't know if you know personally. It's Carrie Fisher. Well, I didn't know she had bipolar. Oh, yes. You, her background and her... She used to do a show on i believe it was on broadway just talked about her life and it was hysterically funny but it laid it out she did not hold back at all good grief so you learned something new i would highly recommend her books as well as watching the show i think it's on netflix or something i wish i could i think it's called wishful drinking <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> that is the name of one of her books and i believe the show has the same title do you know, 
The British are supposed to be the ones that like puns, but so far you have been on your game today. Well, thank you. (laughs) Shall we move on and have a conversation about birth? Uh, You mentioned you were born in Michigan. So where and when and how were you born? I was born in Powhatan Hospital in Niles, Niles, Michigan. It's a small town. And I presume I was born in the traditional sense. It's funny. My mother was 39 at the time. And when I became a teenager, I don't know why the subject came up. We were watching a talk show or something. And my mom said, you know, you weren't planned. And I said, well, I know that. And she said, <laughs> how would you know that? And I said, you, you were 39 years old and you already had six children. You're not crazy. <laughs> Amazing. And she was just in shock because to me it was so obvious and she didn't, she was hesitant to tell me that. And you don't feel like it affected you in any way? Oh, no, no, I couldn't care less. I'm here. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. So tell me a favorite story about your childhood. Well, I've been debating. I don't know if you're talking about young childhood or teenage years or. I leave it kind of open to interpretation, really. I've I've had stories about school. I've had stories about when people were toddlers. Something that you think is cool. Okay. I was a bad kid. A really bad kid. I was obnoxious as a little boy. And, and part of it was related to having bipolar disorder and having no clue whatsoever why I was such a bad and strange kid. But in high school, I got pretty wild. And friend and I had this idea that we had a teacher in the school. She taught French, and I can't remember her name, but she was evil. And she was she was the one that stood in the hallway and caught as many people doing something as they can and put them into discipline. I can't think of what it's called when you're, when you have to stay after school in a room. We call it detention in Britain. Detention. That is the name. I just couldn't get. The oh, this detention as well. Yes. Cool. So she loved to put people in detention and just wasn't a very friendly person. So a friend and I came up with this great idea. And what we did, the school that I was in was built in the middle of nowhere. It only had 200 students. It's a huge school because they anticipated a lot of growth in the area. And and I'll tell you today that it's completely surrounded by neighborhoods. So they knew what they were doing. Right. But when I went to the school, there was a cow pasture on one side and a forest on the other. And... (laughs) This friend and I decided to get even with this woman, even though she wasn't my teacher. And we came up with this great idea to put chickens in her room over the weekend. Good grief. (laughs) (laughs) So we tested it. Another friend of mine was in her last class for the day, and we had him unlock the window to see if she would go back and lock it. And the next day he found that the, no one had ever gone back and locked the window back up. So that was step one. We knew we were in clear there. Wow. We also knew there was 
police patrol on a semi-regular basis. And we had a minimum security prison near the school. And that was another reason why they patrolled, right? Why, sure, and, sure. why yeah. anybody would escape from a minimum security prison. I don't know because they have so much freedom, but people did occasionally. So we got up in the middle of the night and decided to watch how often the cop went by. We had no idea where we were going to get chickens to, to put in her room. We were going to do it on a Friday night. So she had this lovely surprise Monday morning <laughs> because she'd have a, a room full of chickens and lots of chicken shit. <laughs> and we were relishing the idea. So we had to watch and see what the police schedule is. And we stayed there for several hours. It was very cold in the winter. Even in North Carolina, it gets colder. Being in the South, it gets colder much, much more than people think it does. And we hmm. sat there and never saw a cop in two or three hours. So we said, great. Now we know our plan will work. And as we were leaving, I stepped on ice on this very large puddle. It was so large, I would almost call it a small pond, though that's exaggerating. <laughs> and, I, and I fell through the ice, became completely soaked in bitter cold weather. And he rushed me home so I could take a hot shower and dress up. And we never spoke of that incident ever again. So the whole chicken theft plan was the best crime ever thought of that never happened uh i think i'm kind of glad you didn't do that i think that i mean do you think you would have been expelled for that level of prank most likely at least suspended for a while i really don't <laughs> think we would have been caught in any way because i got away with everything i was the good kid in school that sat there and the teachers loved me and I smiled. I never understood the bad kids where they, you knew they were bad kids because they could never get away with anything. But I was the good kid. I had friendships with my teachers. And when in my senior year in high school, I would actually even go have drinks with them after school, which probably wasn't right. appropriate, but I did. But <sighs> behind the scenes, I wasn't being such a nice guy and I got away with murder. I mean, that sounds intelligent more than anything. I guess so. <laughs> I, I would make a great villain in a novel. Well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, Mary Sue's are kind of frowned upon as a concept. Would you ever put yourself in a novel, do you think? Well, it's hard to say where your characters come from in a novel. Mitch O'Reilly, the protagonist in the book that I write, I would say there are definitely parts of me in him. He speaks his mind, which he thinks like I do. He's very cynical, but he speaks his mind where I can't do that as much. But right. he's also, when you create a character, sometimes people will base him on people they know or famous people, but usually you don't know where they came from. It's more of a amalgam of, there was a woman sitting in the corner at Starbucks and a lady I saw on the bus and somebody I got in a conversation with at the supermarket. And then there's my best friend and, and you take pieces of all of them and, and you come up with a character. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it does I, make a lot of sense. So there's a lot of me in Mitch, but it's not entirely me. 
So do you have children yourself? I do. I have a daughter who's 24, and she's currently in Berlin to get her master's degree. Amazing. And um, did you have a naming ceremony, a christening, or any other kind of ceremony to welcome her into the world when she was born? You know, I have never heard of a naming ceremony until I listened to some of the episodes on your show. Okay. Uh, I guess I, I, coming from a non-religious background, I'm guessing it's some religious ritual and some... Well, it's a non-religious alternative to having a christening. It's just a celebratory ceremony with no religion included, or it certainly is if it's done by a humanist celebrant. I'm a Unitarian Universalist, and we have a similar type of ceremony. It's, I don't know if you're familiar with Unitarians. I'm, I'm not. Maybe you could explain that a little more. Yeah, um, but it would be a non-religious ceremony. Unitarians, it, people think it's like a new religion. It actually started about 500 years ago in Transylvania. Okay. And it started more Christian-based as... People did not believe in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were not one person. Christ was Christ and God was God. And and right. at that time, you were a heretic for saying so. So many of the early leaders of our church were, were burned at the stake. And with time, the church became more organized and grew. And eventually... Actually, in the 1960s, well, in the early part of the last century, mm. it became much more liberal. And as a rule, it became you don't have to be believe in Christ to be a member of the church. You can believe in Buddha or whatever you want to believe. Everyone right. is welcome to worship together. And in the 1960s, we merged with the Universalists. And I won't go into a whole lot of detail about them other than say they were more of a religious based, except by universal, they believed everyone would go to heaven, that a, a loving God would never send one to eternal damnation. Right. With time, the two churches became almost identical to each other. So they merged in the early 60s. And it's now... When I go to church, I'm, I'm a, I guess I'd say an atheist. I did practice Buddhism for a while, and I still like Buddhist practice, such as chanting and meditating and that sort of thing. But I don't consider right. myself a Buddhist in the sense of a lot of the Buddhist beliefs. But when I go to church service on Sunday, I could be sitting next to a Muslim who is sitting next to a Jew, who is sitting next to a Hindu, I would say probably half the congregation are atheists, a huge number are humanists, and we all come together because we have the same principles, and that is the foundation of our church. How do you bring all these people with different beliefs together? Well, you find a common bond of goals, and you put them together, and there is no ritual that says you have to believe these. There's, we call it the seven principles of our church. You don't mm. have to believe in ritual no, or uh, number seven, but if you agree with most of the principles in the seven principles, then you're probably Unitarian. A lot of people are real Unitarians and don't know that they are. That sounds pretty amazing. And um, a lot of humanists say that 
a lot of people are humanist, but they don't know that they are. And I think something like humanism and Unitarianism, by the sounds of it, we are all about inclusion, but perhaps the perception isn't that we are, do you think? Well, I can tell you you have a good point there. We are definitely liberals. It would be hard for a hardcore conservative to be a member of the church because we are very active in social causes. Mm-hmm. And the first principle is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. So obviously that includes LGBTQ, people of color, whatever your race, background, whatever. Everyone is welcome. Yeah. The other thing is, the one of the principles is an acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, which means we allow everyone their own direction. Well, evangelicals really aren't very good at doing that. <laughs> so if somebody came into the church holding their Bible— and we, and we do have some Christians in the church, but they are, are pretty laid-back Christians. If you had a fundamentalist come into the church holding their Bible, I don't know how people would take it. They probably wouldn't be very well-received, though not outwardly against them. Just it, it, People would be uncomfortable. And they probably mm. wouldn't stay long through part of a service. I, right. I remember we had somebody checking out the service one day and and the minister said something was bullshit and they looked very conservative and they immediately stood up and walked out. (laughs) That's definitely not what would be um, considered a traditional church for the uh, person up front to say bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's not always the same bullshit, but yeah, we were pretty liberal minded. So there is a ceremony that I don't know if it's necessarily a ceremony, but when people have a child at about six months, we have this little ceremony that that is done where the child is in quotes blessed, I guess you could say. But the yeah. only the only thing that came up with the name was a discussion of what her name would be. My my ex wife, I even though I'm a gay man, I was married to a woman, hoping that mm-hmm. that would hoping that my gayness would change. It didn't work. we've all been there (laughs) i didn't get married though yeah i did and i be honest i fell in love with her i just wasn't the same so but we had a huge debate on what her name would be we never came up with the boy's name she was always adamant she was going to have a girl so we discussed girls names and Mm. she wanted the name eros based on the god eros and I yeah. wanted Sierra because we lived in Arizona at the time. And she won. My daughter's name is Eros, but her middle name is Sierra. Oh, that seems fair. That was that was <laughs> a fair a fair thing to do. And she liked Eros because Eros was a mischievous god and was kind of fun. And my ex-wife was a literature major and just liked a lot about Eros. Now, in Greek, it's a, a traditionally a male name, but we used it for a girl. Mm-hmm. And I was against it because I thought it was too strange. And then I read an article about names and people that grew up with unusual names. And, and they, across the board, they all said the same thing. Growing up, it was a little bit tough. But when they became a, an adult, they found it was an asset. They were remembered. 
they even went so far as to think it helped them get jobs because people remembered them and, and found their name interesting, even if that wasn't a conscious thing. Yeah, that kind of makes sense, you know. So, so after I read that, I said, let's go for it. Eros is fine. I think it's a nice name, actually. It's a, re- it's a really nice name. Yeah, it's, it's Greek, one of the Greek words for love. They have many words for love. Uh, a love between a brother and sister is different than a love between a couple and a love for a parent. And right. I don't know, they have, I, I don't know the number. I think I was told 16 different words that mean love. And granted, Eros is sexual love, but we still liked it anyway. So she always liked to te- she always liked to tell people when she was a little girl that my name is Eros and Eros means love. That's lovely. That's really lovely. So you mentioned you had a ceremony, but you wouldn't have called it a naming ceremony. What would you have called it and what did it entail? Well, we didn't have a ceremony because I, I, I wasn't a Unitarian at the time. But oh, right. h- had I been, we would have had that service. And I honestly don't know what it's called. It's just the child comes up and I think even the minister may sprinkle water on the kid. We, you know, we take little bits and pieces from all religions, you know, not, not just sprinkle water for, for, I don't know what sake, but not because we think it's holy water or anything of that nature. And then there's just a little service where the minister says a few words and the congregation does a, a, back and forth with the minister in agreement that as a congregation, we will treat this child as we would treat all others and help in their growth. Amazing. Kind of a call and response thing. Yeah. We didn't do that because I wasn't a Unitarian at the time, but I loved the idea once I became one. Right. Ace. And so if you had another child, do you think you would do that? Most definitely. If I had another child, it's not going to happen, but, (laughs) uh, yeah, most definitely. I would do a lot of things differently, but that would be one of them. Yeah, I think for people like you and me, I mean, I, I came out a lot later than some people do. And I do feel like it changed how I look at my own gayness. I was 24, 23, 24 when I came out. So I kind of missed all the kind of teenage stupidity but Mm -hmm. i didn't i did the teenage stupidity when i was 24 what was your experience well i was closeted most of my life until i was 35 wow and i had been married for five years and i knew there was an attraction obviously and i kept thinking as long as it's sexual it's something i can keep buried and I lived in Las Las Vegas at the time, and my wife went to visit family back east, and a guy I used to work with went to Las Vegas for a bowling tournament, and we got together, and he was gay, or is gay, I should say. He's still around, <laughs> and he took me around to clubs and and just sitting in a bar and laughing and, and talking openly to other men and, and being myself, I, the night ended with me realizing I was never going to go back. I couldn't go back because it was right. more, it, there is more to it about than sex. And so yep. I, I started getting therapy at the gay and lesbian center. They had, it was a very small center they had there at that time. It's huge now. 
but they got a grant to have a therapist at their at their center. So I would see him every week, and then one day I told her I'm gay, and and when I told him I had said that, he said I knew that was coming, but I never expected it to come this fast. So, <laughs> so I don't feel like I particularly regret it. I feel that yeah, I could and maybe should have come out earlier than I did but I kind of like who I am and I kind of like what I've become and I eventually got there I I stopped being a teenager in my 20s and kind of caught up and became relatively stable comfortable gay man happy in his own skin and I don't know whether I would change it do you regret coming out so late do you think you know it's such a hard thing to answer because for example if i never married i wouldn't have a daughter and i love and adore yeah. my daughter so in that sense it's hard to say gee i wish i had done things differently but yeah i do kind of wish that when i was in my 20s and young and sexy that you know i could have been having fun with the other guys but also during that time period that was the aids crisis and mm. i was being in north carolina I was really removed from all that. It was something that was going, first of all, gay people were out there somewhere. We had some gay bars in town, but I had no clue as to where they were. They were just somewhere. And AIDS was this disease that was happening elsewhere. It wasn't a part of my life at all. So as horrific as that period was, it is odd to me to talk to people my age that share what a horrific experience it was to go through that time and me not really being able to relate to what they're talking about. I, I only have one friend that died of AIDS and right. you know, they, some of my older friends lost almost everybody they knew. So yeah. it, it sounds like an odd thing to say I missed. I, I regret missing that. No, but there's, uh, I know what you mean. It, there's a, almost a validity of, having got through something like that, I guess. Yes, most definitely. And the good thing is, I will, on my behalf, is having come out late. When I did come out, I was, let's to put it nicely, say, promiscuous. I, I had a good time for a while. Uh, it was like a kid going into the candy store for the first time. And had that been me in the 80s, there's no telling, you know. Yes. I, it's very, very likely I would probably be dead today. Yeah, and I can completely understand that. I was skirting around that with the say, but yeah, I I think there aren't that many gay men who certainly that may have struggled to come out that then don't what my friends called rocket out of the closet, and um, yeah, the the promiscuity thing is real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And what's wonderful to me is things are so different nowadays. The local high school gay straight alliance asked me to come in and speak to them. And it was so overwhelming to me to go to a high school and talk to this group of gay and straight kids working together. Yeah, that's amazing. It's something I never would have imagined and certainly not coming from the South, but I was overwhelmed. 
I was almost in tears. It was so it, it was amazing to me, and I'm so happy to see that happening. My daughter's 24. She people her age when she was in high school. It it's almost not all kids are this way, but for her friends in their school, it's it's a non-issue. Yeah, things really did get better in my lifetime. I've seen a tangible difference, and I'm what just over 10 years younger than you, but. The difference, particularly in Britain, I, I'm not so sure in the States, but things have changed so much from the fear that I had as a kid growing up in the early 90s compared to what potentially is a different experience for kids that age now. It's it's good to see. And I never expected to be able to get married, I'll be honest with you. I agree with you. Uh, I've been married to my husband now for... Well, well, I guess we're going to get to marriage soon. Yeah. Shall we actually get on and talk about marriage then? I think that's kind of transitioned nicely. You, I, I know you're married. I know you've also been married to uh, a former partner, your your wife. So you can pick. You can tell me about both of them. You can tell me about the most recent one. You can do what you like. But tell me about your wedding day. Okay. Well, I've been married four times. Oh, with, four times. <laughs> with, two, with two spouses. Okay. <laughs> and let me explain that. Let's start with my ex-wife. She and I worked together, and we worked for a hotel company, not in an office, not in a hotel. And she was new and working part-time, so she didn't have insurance. And I did. And we want we just we became engaged and and we were concerned about the fact that she didn't have insurance. As you know, here in the states, not having insurance is a very big deal. Yeah. So we were concerned about that, but we weren't ready to have a wedding because we knew we wanted a huge celebration. So we lived in Omaha, Nebraska, and we drove to Kansas City because they didn't have the same requirements that you have to wait a certain amount of time to get married. We were able to sign the marriage license and get married in one day. So we did a quickie wedding. It was at this courthouse where they had a display of President Harry Truman's courtroom that he oversaw. And and that was the room where we actually had the ceremony. We found some guy in the newspaper to do to do the service. And it was very funny. He said he yelled out the door i need a witness do i have a witness and woman one of the women or two of the women in some offices somewhere said yeah we're witnesses go ahead and, and, <laughs> and so that's how we we first got married but we didn't tell a soul didn't tell a soul the only people that knew were the people in the human resources department where i worked i told them why we were doing it the way we were doing it and they said there's no way you'll be able to keep this a secret. Well, a year later, we had a huge ceremony, uh, a very fun ceremony, and still most people don't know about that original legal marriage that we had. Amazing. I guess many will now. Well, yeah. <laughs> if they've listened in, <laughs> the cat's out the bag. Yeah, and it was an outstanding service. It was, it was a lot of fun. We had it in a park. 
the wedding party, we were all dressed up, but we asked everyone to wear shorts and a T-shirt. We rented the entire park. And so after the service, everybody went and played in the park, playing horseshoes. I think they did a softball game. And and they just people talk about to this day about what a great wedding idea it was. The negative is when we did our first dance together, we were inside a pavilion and nobody was there because they were all outside having fun. And (laughs) (laughs) the mother of the bride was very unsuccessful at getting people to come in. They were all having too much fun. So we did this little dance with maybe 10 people watching us when we had probably 300 people there. I mean, I think there are quite a few people that would probably be quite pleased with that, actually. Well, I don't know if there's a tradition there. There is a tradition here in the U.S. and especially in the South, though we married in the Midwest, where during the couple's dance, as it's ending, usually it's the bride's father will take money and people pay to dance with the bride. And it's just kind of a no, way. No, I've never heard that tradition before. Interesting. It's just a way of gift giving. You know, right. Uh, here's a here's some money for them to help them get started, and hey, I'll get a dance with the bride as a result. Well, we didn't get much money to to do that. In fact, all we got out of it was one of our kegs had completely run dry, and we bought another keg of beer with the money that we got, and, <laughs> and that was it. We didn't use it to save money or go on our honeymoon or anything of that nature. But I mean, would that tradition generally make a lot of money then? I think as a rule, some people do make a lot of money. Not everybody does it, but the ones that do it, yeah, I, I think they bring in a pretty good sum. It's kind of like I, when I was 13, I told my parents I wanted to be Jewish so I could have a bar mitzvah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, let's do that wedding dance so we can bring in some bucks. Good grief. No, I'd never heard that before. That's fascinating. What was the song? The song was... Shameless by Garth Brooks. Okay. It was a very strange choice because my ex-wife was very much into alternative music. And I, as a rule, liked, I'd say rock, disco, that kind of thing, whatever is popular at the time. But we chose a country singer because we liked the song. Okay, cool. So tell me about your wedding day to your husband. Well, that was similar. We scheduled to get married and I was insistent that I wanted my daughter to be my best man or I guess best person. Right. And we couldn't get her. It wasn't a time that I could fly her into Los Angeles and have that happen. The other thing was being on disability. We were concerned with how getting married would affect my disability income as well as my Medicare. Right. Okay. So we we were concerned that would affect it. So once again, this time it was the opposite. We had a, a more of a commitment ceremony at my church and it was out on the back patio, which overlooks the city. It's absolutely gorgeous. And there were only five of us there. I think there was my best friend. There was our minister who did the service. And then another minister who is a good friend of ours, she sang. And that was it. Right. And then he and people have thought for the, again, this is going to be news for the past 12 years, people have thought that we were married and 
one or two months ago when we got the when the Supreme Court became more conservative and we became concerned that marriage could be overturned, we said, let's get married. So about a month or two, we went and just had a quickie wedding. So you got a legal piece of paper. Yes, we went to the clerk and got our marriage license and then drove straight from there to a friend's house who is who is a minister. And she and her husband were there and we didn't even have a ceremony. We're all sitting on the couch and she filled out the paperwork and said, uh, Brad, you need to come sign it. And then she said, Maurice, my husband, you need to come sign it. And then she said to her husband, she said, OK, as a witness, you need to come sign it. And then we all sat back in the living room and that was it. Good grief. But psychologically, it makes a huge difference. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of, well, humanist weddings in the UK, they have to do a legal wedding at the town hall and, again, sign the piece of paper like you described because humanist ceremonies aren't legal in this country yet. They are legal in Scotland, but not England. And it sounds like you did something similar to what my couples have to do but with 12, de- 12 years in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I have strong feelings about this. Marriage is both a legal contract and a, I guess, for lack of a better word, a spiritual contract. Mm. There's a lot of benefits legally to getting married. Yeah. And what I would like to see, and actually the minister that married us did our first ceremony he was strongly for was you know there are whole churches that are upset that you know about marriage equality right we don't think ministers should be involved in in the legal process whatsoever Uh, in fact our old minister said he didn't appreciate being uh, part of the legal system of the state so what I would like to see and my husband would like to see is that everyone is required to get a legal marriage through a judge or, or magistrate or, or some kind of office that legally right. marries people. And then if you want to have a spiritual ceremony at the church, that's an entirely different issue. So if you go to a church that doesn't support it, then fine. You don't have to have one. If you do go yeah. to a church that does support it, well, then great. You you can have a beautiful ceremony. The, the two should be totally different. Yeah, I think you're basically championing equality, meaning everybody has to do the same thing regardless of what they believe. And I, I can definitely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to belong to a church that didn't believe in my marriage anyway. But for those that do, mm. it, it would be an option for them. Yeah, exactly that. So... Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that you've had four weddings to two people. I think that's brilliant. Is there any other stories from either of them that you wanted to tell me about? Well, I can tell you from the big wedding that my ex-wife and I had, it it was, as I said, it was done in this park and her parents were divorced and did not get along in any way. In fact, her mother said, I'm not going to sit in the front row because your father will be in the front row which really upset my ex-wife. And she had long talks with her mother and basically begged and pleaded. And her mother finally said, reluctantly, I'll I'll sit in the front row. Yeah. So there was a trailer kind of off to the side of the park 
in the park where we were all getting dressed up and the ladies were getting their dresses on and the men were putting on their tuxes. And one of my ushers, he's a great friend of mine, ran into the trailer in a panic and said to my ex-wife, your mom, I tried to sit her in the front row and she refused. She sat three rows back. And my ex-wife at the top of her lungs went, that bitch. (laughs) And at the exact same moment she said that her mother, who we didn't realize was standing behind her said, what, what, who's a bitch? What's the problem? Well, as it turns out, it wasn't the mother that refused to sit in the front row. It was an aunt who didn't feel like it was appropriate for her to sit in the front row, that it should be for the parents only. So that was (laughs) for, Five minutes, that was a very awkward situation. <laughs> That's well, I'm, I'm glad that she wasn't a bitch in the end. <laughs> uh, well, whether or not she was, I won't go there, but she wasn't at that particular moment. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't sound like you had a first dance with your husband, or did you? No, we didn't. We didn't have any kind of ceremony of that type in any way. It's, it's I guess that's kind of disappointing. We wanted to, when we did legally get married like we did now, mm. we did plan to have some kind of large ceremony and again, have my daughter there. And and as I said, when the Supreme Court changed and became more conservative and we were nervous about what was going to happen, which is yeah. ridiculous that, you know, the legal, whether you can get married or not will depend on who happens to be on the court, but that's the way it it's works. It's insane, here. isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 totally insane. But because of that, we just felt like it, there was a need to just do it, and so we did. So that you are our, the second gay person in a row from America on this podcast that has said that they felt forced they had to get married because they thought that they may not be able to after a change, which is frightening. That. Even now, in 2021, these things can be taken away from us. Correct. I I really don't think it will ever be taken away in the sense that people that are married, it will be removed because Mm. it was the law of the land at the time of their marriage. Yeah. But I, I do think they could easily say from this point forward, no marriage equality. You can't marry someone of the same sex. Horrible. Yeah, I, I agree. It's horrible. And I could be wrong. And they, they're, you know, I guess there's a way they could come across and say all same-sex marriages are null and void, but that that's very unlikely. And I think legally that would be difficult for them to do. Yeah, let's hope not. Good grief. All right, so we're going to move on to the final section, which is about death. And the first question is, are you afraid of death? You know, I always thought I was, and and I didn't think I was. I was afraid of death, and I I didn't know why. But I was diagnosed with a brain tumor about 10 years or so ago. Good grief. And it's okay, but uh, it was on what's called the clivus, which is most people have never heard of the clivus bone. It's the very last bone in the back of your skull and it's small and it's pretty much where all the nerve endings come out of your spine. And so it's not a good location to have a tumor because it's kind of a dangerous spot for them to have to dig into. 
Well, to find out I had this tumor on my clivus, I did research and I found out that clivus cancer, clivus tumors, most people are dead within seven years. They can go in and operate and they can laser it out, but it will probably come back a couple of times. And eventually within seven years, you will likely be dead. And I was okay with that. I was very at peace with that. And I think in a sense, I felt like, you know, I kind of know when the road is going to end and most people don't have that. And I can, I can do the things I want to do and, and be with the people that I want to be and that sort of thing. So I was surprisingly comfortable with the idea. Right. Now I was relieved when I found out it's a benign tumor that wasn't clivus cancer, but it was a benign tumor that just happened to be sitting on that bone. Right. So unless I get hit by a bus or something, I don't anticipate being dead in seven years from it. It it just sits there. It's benign and it it doesn't grow. And and I just have to go back every year and have it checked to make sure it doesn't grow and start pushing on nerves. So it's just, it's a nuisance more than anything, but, but I thought I was a goner. So in that way, I was much more accepting. Am I afraid of it now? In a sense, because of the unknown. Hmm. I don't know what happens after I die. I, I, I don't necessarily believe, I, I want to believe that there's something else beyond right. now, what that is. I don't know. I, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe a God that would create us would be vindictive enough that if we didn't do what he said to do, he would send us to eternal damnation and hell. Uh, you know, that's, that's pretty cruel. And I don't know if there's a heaven, but I want to, I think like most believe people want to believe that there's something else afterwards. I don't think there is. I think once, <laughs> I think once we die, we're, we're gone. Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson said people have a hard time understanding death because they can't imagine just not being, not thinking this, you know, and he said, People should think back to they don't remember anything before they were born. You didn't exist then. So why do you think you exist when you die? I think that's all probably true, but I hope that's not true. (laughs) Fair enough. So have you ever experienced the death of a loved one? Oh, yes, quite a bit. Both both my mother and my father are dead. I I have a brother and sister who both died. And then a a person, he wasn't a close friend but as he was dying we became extremely close and he died and you mentioned you lost someone to to age as well didn't you that's the friend that i'm talking about right okay it was an odd situation i uh, i'm an alcoholic and i was this was probably boy almost 20 years ago that this happened i was in a meeting and let me step back a little bit my partner at the time was a dj and so we lived at the clubs right and for whatever reason i'm attracted to djs but i will tell you people they make horrible partners because of the hours they work and all the drugs and alcohol that exist yeah uh, but for whatever reason i'm attracted to djs so anyway we used to he used to dj at this bar small bar it wasn't really a club and there was this guy, Eric, that would come in and, and he was 
kind of a peculiar character, but he would come in and, and flirt around and, and that sort of thing. And he lost a place to live. I don't remember what the story was, but we let him live on our couch for a couple of weeks to a month. Right. But then he moved out and we lost track of him. And, and I wouldn't say that we were ever friends. Then one day after I became sober and I was at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, he happened to be sitting behind me and he tapped on my shoulder and said, I'd like to talk to you. And and he told me that he had AIDS and and just wanted someone to be there for him, that he had nobody really there. And right. we became very close to the point that for three months I lived with him at the hospital. I I would get up and go to work in the morning and immediately afterwards I would go back to the hospital and sleep on the cot in the room and, and was there for him and would wheel him around even, even though he was technically not supposed to be outside the room um, because he had hepatitis in, in addition to being having AIDS, the nurses right. just kind of let it slide and I would wheelchair him around the hospital and, and some of the outdoor patios so he could have, a cigarette and that sort of thing. And so we developed this very close relationship and that was probably the most devastating death that I experienced because yeah, and I wasn't thrilled with losing both my parents, but it was, it was a much different scenario than this was. And he was very young and, and I did find out that he developed AIDS. He was a street hustler, which I kind of had when he used to come to the bar, I kind of had an inkling that that was true. But right. I never knew for for a fact. And one day while he was in bed, he said, you know, when you hustle and you're not safe, I guess this is what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Good grief. Thank you again for sharing that. It's an incredible story. Um, I think we're going to move on and we'll talk about what you want for your own funeral now. Uh, have you decided if you wanted to be buried or cremated? Without hesitation, I want to be cremated. Okay. And what's the reason for that? Well, I can tell you why. First of all, the idea of slowly rotting in, in a grave is grotesque to me. Okay. It, it really creeps me out. The other reason is for a short, short period, I sold pre-burial plants. And right. we always wanted to upsell people to these coffins that were very sealed tight that would help slow down the decay process and that sort of thing. Well, what I learned from that, that we didn't tell people is if you took a, some ham and you put it in a plastic bag, what eventually happens to it? Yeah. It becomes very slimy. So if you're in one of these sealed tight coffins and you're not decaying, you actually kind of turn into this slimy mess. Hmm. Either way, even though I would be dead and I wouldn't know what was happening to me, the idea was just not a good idea to me. And so, yeah, I want to be cremated. Get it over with. Let me be ashes. I'm more comfortable with that idea. Yeah. I don't know what the percentages are in the States for burial compared to cremation, but it's a huge majority of people in Britain now that are getting cremated compared to buried. I don't know the actual number of the statistics. I think if people from i think people from different religious backgrounds tend to be buried more often I, mm. I don't know for a fact i think if you're catholic it's much more traditional to be buried muslims too muslims too but 
most people I know prefer cremation and both of my parents were cremated. So my fascination with Americans and embalming, am I just being weird and obsessive or is it still a massive deal? Well, again, if you're cremated, it, you don't have to be embalmed. We, mm. had my, we had my mother embalmed when she died because we just thought it was the thing you had to do. Right. And usually embalming, if you're going to have an open casket, they have to be embalmed. Otherwise, they won't look so hot. And they wouldn't smell very nice either. <laughs> no, they would not. It would, it would not be a pleasant experience for anyone. I mean, I personally don't like open casket funerals anyway. I find them creepy. They, mm. they, my brother's ex-wife had an open casket with his funeral, and I, I didn't appreciate that much. But if you're going to do that, I, I guess embalming is necessary. Yeah. But, and, and I don't like the idea. I mean, if I'm dead and you're drawing all my fluids out, then I'm definitely dead. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, it's like ta- it is like taxidermy. I'm just on display for people to look at. I might as well be up on the wall. Yeah. Well, I have never heard of an open casket cere- open coffin ceremony in Britain ever. I don't know anyone who's done that. It doesn't happen as much here as it used to, but it still happens. Mm. I'm trying to remember if it was open when my dad died. We, he was cremated, but his wife at the time, she may have done an open casket, but I don't recall seeing him. I, if if she did, mm. I, I probably avoided it. Yeah, fair enough. So have you thought about a reading that you would like to be read at your funeral? I don't know specifically what. For the most part, my funeral, I want to be left up to my loved ones, let's say perhaps right. my, my husband, because it's really more for them than for me. And, and I I do think in, in a funeral, you want to respect the wishes of the person who has died. So there is an, somewhat of an obligation there, but if there's something that would make him give him comfort that I either am not all that fond of the idea or, or just don't like then go for it. I'll be dead. Who cares? So huh. most of that I'm going to leave up to him. I would say if there was something I would want read, it would be something from Carrie Fisher because I, as I said, she right. had a bipolar background like I did, and she she has made some tremendous quotes and written many great books. I don't know what that passage would be. I know small quotes that she has made. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, one of, one of my favorites that she said is, if my life wasn't funny, it would be just true, and that is unacceptable. <laughs> and I love that. I can see why you like that. <laughs> she had an incredible wit. She, she was much more than Leia. And she said so many quotes like that, that I'm sure there's a passage from one of her books that would probably warp. And I would like that if there is such a, such a thing that is long and would, all of it would fit in there. Mm. And so perhaps you haven't thought about this either. Are there any music tracks you'd want to be played for entrance, reflection or exit of your funeral? You know, I I can't think of anything. My favorite song is Lithium by Nirvana, which would be a very 
bizarre song to play at a funeral. So well, I've heard more bizarre than that. I have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd want that to be it. I, I don't know. Maybe people knowing it, it was my favorite song would take comfort in it, but maybe for the exit, perhaps. Yes. Yes. Beyond that, I, I don't haven't really thought anything and I don't know if I care. I, there's no song that really touches me. You know, I had a friend that always said he wanted Stairway to Heaven, and I've heard some other things. Those don't interest me. I, yeah. I don't know. I do know one thing that I don't want to have happen at my funeral. Go on. I don't want who is ever doing the service, let's say it's a minister, I do not want him or her to say, if anyone would like to come up and say something about the deceased, please feel free to do so. I absolutely hate that part of every funeral because the people that have the least interesting things to say are the ones that come forward. <laughs> and each one says the same thing as the last one. And it becomes very boring very fast. And if it's a long, if you have a lot of people there at the ceremony, it can go on for a very long time. So it's a nice concept, but no. I, I don't want the people to be there at my funeral to have to go through that kind of torture. It's definitely a trope in American comedies that, that I have noticed. And what's fascinating to me is I just simply can't do that in my ceremonies. People book 20 minute slots in a crematorium and my ceremonies, I'm not going to leave 10 minutes out on the off chance someone else might want to say something. I, you know, I work with the family and create a personal ceremony. So none of my ceremonies, unless it was outside of a crematorium, would I even contemplate allowing anyone to come up and just talk? Yeah, it, it is a very strange concept. The, the, the most recent funeral I attended, I'm okay with what they did. And I think it's much, it, it happens at most funerals, I believe, where people are selected to speak. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've done that on quite a lot of occasions. Yeah, a close relative and an old friend and, and a few people that were involved in their life, they they would have something prepared that they would say. And I'm okay with that. Let that be the end. But then so many of the funerals, when they're done, that's when the minister says, if anybody else has something to say. And that's when it goes downhill. <laughs> Fair enough. Again, I've always been obsessing about open caskets and now you've mentioned that that is another thing that i've seen so many times in american culture that when i think about it is so completely alien to me as a brit i had a friend who i knew years ago actually we just recently connected but when we were kids her father was already dead and she told me that there was an open casket we call in the united states we generally call them coffins, which, okay. I, which I think is what you do in your part of the world. Am I correct? Yeah, we call them coffins. I, I, I thought you called them caskets. No, we call them coffins. But for whatever reason, when you have it at a service and it's open, we refer to it as an open casket. I guess because that sounds nicer than an open coffin. I, I don't know why that is. But Good usually, grief. usually if you go and you're picking one out, you're going to buy your coffin. Though some people may say casket. I think they're just interchangeable. Right. Fair enough. But back to the friend of mine, when her father died, it was an open casket ceremony. 
And her mother refused to allow her to go look at her, her dad. And what the mother told her is, I don't want that to be the last thing you remember seeing of your father. Mm. Which is so true. Like, I can picture my my brother laying in the coffin, the open casket, very vividly. And why do I want to see that? It, you know, when my when I think of my brother. It's, yeah. There are a lot of other things I'd rather come to mind than that. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, Brad, thank you so much for joining me on Life's Milestones. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And um, tell people where they can find you on the internet if they want to read your books, they want to listen to your podcasts. Where can people find you? Well, for my podcast, it's Queer Writers of Crime, and they can go to queerwritersofcrime.com or wherever they're listening to your show, they'll likely be able to find me. I'm on all all the different platforms. Right. Lovely. If they're interested in my books, then they can go to bradshreve.com, which is my name, B-R-A-D-S-H-R-E-V-E, which I guess will be in your show notes. Indeed. They can go to bradshreve.com and... It will give a little bit about me, also describes the book, and there's a link that will take them to Amazon where they can buy the book. Brilliant. And is there anything else you wanted to say that we haven't managed to get in? Oh, there's plenty of things about it. I could talk about myself forever. <laughs> I am my favorite subject. <laughs> but the only thing I'll say is I, I'm glad you asked me to be on this show because I, as a result, I've started listening to your show and I really enjoy it. Oh, well, thank you so much. The, the stories people tell are very interesting. Yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate to get a lot of candid and very interesting people on the show, and you're very much the latest one of them. So thank you so much for being my guest this time. Well, thank you for asking. I just want to say one more time thank you so much to Brad for his time and his candid stories from across the pond as my guest this week on Life's Milestones. And I have downloaded Brad's book. I haven't listened to it yet because the latest Ben Aronovich dropped and I love him, but I am going to listen to it next. So maybe on a later episode, I'll just remind you that I downloaded his book and I'll let you know what I thought of it. Before I go, just a quick reminder that I am a life cycle celebrant, which means I do do namings and weddings. And as we come out of this horrible, horrible lockdown, back to normality, now is the time to think about booking a celebrant if you're looking for a naming ceremony or a wedding. Get in touch. I would love to be able to do a ceremony for you. And don't forget, regular listeners get their 10% discount. So thank you so much for joining me on Life's Milestones and I will see you next time. Life's Milestones is a podcast on the We Made This Podcast Network. The show's host is me, Mark Adams. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at MarkAdamsHC. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Mark Adams Humanist Celebrant. My website is humanist.org.uk forward slash Mark Adams. 
regular listeners to Life's Milestones can claim a 10% discount on a naming ceremony or a wedding by quoting milestones when you get in touch. The show's theme tune was written and performed by Colin Jackson-Brown and the logo created by Carl Bryan. You can follow the show on Twitter at Life's Milestones. Hello everyone, this is Tony, Network Chief of We Made This. As you know, our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content, such as the episode you've just listened to. We're not going anywhere, but we'd love to keep the lights on for even longer if you're able to support our network on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get your name in lights and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month, you'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This Talent Pool on podcasting, pop culture, and, well, you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. Just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash we made this. And get the ball rolling. Elsewhere on We Made This. Right in the childhood. At the moment, number one is Gummy Bears. Number two is Robin of Sherwood. Number three is Dark Season. And number four is The Tripods. Where are we putting Cyber City? This is going straight to the top. Popping right to the top. I I was all about this, yeah. My goodness. I was, yeah, I was digging this. I I feel like my top five for your stuff has been like, everything's getting better and better. Yeah, this was, I was digging it. We dig music. She always makes me think of my mum, though, because my mum's middle name is Avril. Right, okay, I thought you meant because your mum <laughs> was a skater boy? Because she was uh, a skater boy, yeah. <laughs> or, or your dad was. <laughs> Actually, my dad was. My dad, you in go. his youth, used to play roller hockey. <laughs> I don't think that's quite the same as being a skateboarder. He was a skater boy. He had Fair roller enough. boots. Don't diss roller boots. Roller boots are f***ing rubbish. <laughs> I tripped, I f***ing tripped over a roller skate earlier, so roller skates can f- Roller boots are coming back in a big way, man. I've seen loads of people doing <laughs> skating. That, that, is, like that. that is true, actually. You've seen I always wanted some and I never got a pair. You could get some now. Yeah, yeah. Could, could have had some for your 50th birthday. That wouldn't have been a <laughs> midlife crisis, would it? Yeah, I'll probably kill myself by I'm 51. Yeah, don't do that. We've got a load more episodes planned. We are Starfleet. They want to share their their joy, their feelings, you know, whether it's happiness or disappointment. And I understand. But Thursday afternoon, you know, taking a screen grab of the final act and like the big reveal and just like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. And then hashtagging like Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Voyager. It's like, come on, man, you're spoiling it. Yeah, I I hate spoilers myself. I, I do... Whenever there's something I'm looking forward to, I do try to stay off of any and all social media if I can. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Mm-hmm.